Hi everyone, I'm Liam Sanyo from Inside Scientific, your favorite online source for life science webinars, virtual events, interviews, and educational content helping you do your best work. This episode of Expert Answers features Dr. Arutha Kulasinghe, clinical omics group leader at the Fraser Institute, and founding scientific director of the Queensland Biology Spatial Center, and senior research fellow in the Institute of Molecular Biosciences at the University of Queensland. Arutha recently joined us for a webinar where he discusses the application of single-cell spatial phenotyping for characterizing the tumor microenvironment and how it can be used to develop predictive biomarkers. Let's jump right in. So spatial proteomics is a really exciting field of research in the life sciences, but are we actually learning new biology from studying these patient cohorts that were previously not possible with bulk or single-cell approaches? Yeah, great question. I think I think what spatial has done is, especially having FFPE compatibility, so formal and fixed paraffin embedded comp compatibility allows us to go back in time and look at archival cohorts. So you can go into pathology banks, hospitals, and look at cohorts that are 20, 30 years old. You can get incredibly well clinically annotated cohorts and you can look at, you know, patients might have done exceptionally well to a therapy versus a, a group that didn't do well. And you can start to understand why these tumors did well, almost cell by cell using these um, cords. And, and I guess the other, um, the fields really moved on from, from sort of bulk into single cell and not spatial, but the, the spatial proteomics, I think is, is sort of, uh, it's putting all these data sets together Single cell improved on what we were doing with the bulk data, but the spatial is really putting it into the context. And, and for us, the beauty of this approach has been, we don't need to go prospectively collect cohorts at this stage. Yes, we will need to do that for the validation studies, but we can go back in time and go back and look at really well annotated retrospective cohorts and, and start to identify signatures that we can drill down into and then prospectively go validate them. So I think it's it's really um, moved the field forward, um, especially for the clinical space. A lot of our oncology communities are really excited by these technologies um, because it gives us new insights into into individual patient tumors and, and, and why they respond and why some don't. And in the patients that don't respond to therapy, how can we better target them? How can we better identify biomarkers that'll, um, you know, we can give combination therapies to. Excellent. Yeah, definitely a really exciting field to be in right now. Uh, so where you mentioned the spatial resolution of these assays, uh, which I must say are uh, yielding some pretty fantastic results. So what distances or resolutions are you actually measuring here? Yeah, so we're going down into single cells and subcellular. Some a couple of years ago, the spatial field was sort of multicellular readout. But we've using these technologies we now have single cell resolution you can you know you do all your cell segmentation into single cells we aren't really trying to push the boundaries and go subcellular at this stage with the proteomics approaches because we think the single cell approach is probably where we need to be to align with what pathologists can interpret and understand so i think um getting that information so for example the lung cancer and, and skin cancer studies we're looking at three to four million cells per patient tissue sample, and we're analyzing those across multiple studies. So um, drilling down into single cells, I think, is is probably our upper limit because that's the level of information that becomes informative for pathologists. 
All right, great point. We actually have a question here about uh, pathology. Uh, does the data lend itself well to digital pathology? Is it uh, really informative for the pathology community? I think you uh, touched on that a bit, but maybe you could elaborate. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, I, I mean, I presented this work at, at Pathology Visions last year, and it was really interesting to see how all the AI companies are, you know, they're, they're, they're aiding pathologists in diagnosing cancer. I think where spatial is going to be informative is and, and where the pathology community were really excited was they could see that spatial is giving us new insights into the tissue that pathologists cannot see based on an H&E. So is it telling us about a new therapeutic that might work? Is it telling us about a functional state in the tumor that can be targeted? So these are information that a pathologist cannot read off an H&E that spatial can aid in informing them about the tissue and then it helps in the therapeutic decision making for the oncology community so i think as long as these assays are complementary to what pathologists do and it's not reproducing what they do um we sort of play in the same we're able to play in the same sandpit um and i think it i think that's the position that spatial's really taken and it's moving the field forward towards a digital pathology um, almost revolution because as we build these omics clouds or these multi-omic data clouds, we use that information to drill down to a single cell or a pixel level what we can see on the tissues directly and what is pathology interpretable. And once we do that, that becomes really powerful because we can now start to identify features on an H&E that a pathologist looks at to then you know, identify therapies that might work and aid an oncologist in, in, in their therapeutic decision-making. So I think spatial is going to, in the next couple of years, really develop new ways that we're starting to understand what therapies to give individual patients. And, and I think it, it lends itself into, you know, can we identify patients' responders versus non-responders? Can we predict those patients really early um, from diagnostic tissue um, if possible? Great answer. Um, all right. So is it all about plexity or are there other factors like, you know, throughput or imageable area? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, I think there is a plex war going on at the moment. I don't think it's all about plex. Um, I, I mean, plexity is great in that, you know, everyone's pushing towards the upper, upper limits of we want to get as much information as we can from these tissues. But I think with the proteomics field, um, having assays, you know, between six to a hundred plex that you can run routinely, robustly, reproducibly in a high throughput manner on clinical cohorts in a timely manner where you can go from sample to, you know, due data generation and analysis within a timely manner. Um, ultimately these assays need to be, you know, sample to read out within a, a couple of days if it's going to be clinically actionable. Um, so I don't think it's all about plexity at the moment. I think plexity is part of the story because we're trying to glean as much information as we can from these tissues, but I don't think we're going to be running, you know, hundreds and thousands of markers. Yes, potentially for discovery studies, but for the clinical piece, it is going to be a lot less. If we look at the um, ASCO multiplex IF assays that were published last year, they were all 18 plex or below for clinically linked signatures. So it's telling us that for the clinically linked signatures, we probably need to be around the fifth, you know, between the six to 15 plex space. That's probably where we'll end up. So I, I don't think it's all about plexity. Plexity is sort of where uh, I think in the transcriptomic space, yes, that is a, everyone wants to get as much information as they can, but I don't think that's a, a, a 
high throughput, clinically orientated assay um, that'll move forward to the clinic. Um, you sort of need to have a targeted panel that you're able to run on every sample in a, in a timely manner. Yeah, that's a really excellent point. Um, so which data analysis and visualization platforms are being used here? Yeah, um, so my lab sort of split. We use commercial and um, open source. So we use a lot of QPath. We we use a number of um, analyses tools that Acquire Biosciences provides with testing MCM Micro and a number of sort of cloud-based um, uh, solutions as well. Um, so I think the field is very sort of, I think the tools are being developed and they're being put out there and we're testing them almost daily, um, the different approaches. There was a paper that came out a couple of weeks ago talking about how you can use pixels to you know, annotate your tissues and, and sort of uh, annotate your cells and then rather than your cell types, uh, cell type clustering. So we're using a number of um, approaches developed by a number of labs in the US, but we was trying to standardize that workflow. So um, it, is, it is a lot of um, published approaches at the moment and and trying to do that in a in a, in a high throughput manner is, is really really important for us i think that leads well into another question here somebody's written that they're new to the field and there's obviously a, a lot of tools on the market so how do you decide on the technology and approach yeah it's a good question i think i think the first question you need to ask yourself is um do you need spatial to answer the question you're asking i think a lot of people are jumping into spatial without having a spatially relevant question if you do if that's a yes then i'm trying to figure out whether it's discovery or, or, or translational for us you know we did the traditional you know let's just go on bias whole transcriptome profiling of tissues identify you know our top hits and then go validate them at the protein level the traditional sort of uh, approach that the field's been using for decades what we've done, though, in the last year is we've pivoted to proteomics-based discovery. When you have 50 to 100 markers that you can run on these samples, that is also discovery targeted, but it is discovery because you are starting to understand the tumor microenvironment with a molecular readout that is, one, pathology-friendly, but two, it's it, it, it it's probably a, a lot more robust compared to your RNA signatures. So... Um, so we're trying to really drill down on, on the protein. So I think for a new user, figuring out whether you want to do discovery science or, or translational science is probably your first question. Um, but then also looking at the, you know, the, the technologies that have, um, you know, good data sets out there, highly published. I think that's important. A lot of peer review papers um, is important for the field, not just, you know, pretty pictures. Um, I think having robust peer-reviewed um, papers is important to show the robustness of these assays. And one of the really exciting things for us working with Acquia uh, Biosciences was that we could see that there were a number of organizations, the Jedi Council and a few other of these organizations, Astropath and, you know, assay standardization um, um, working groups around the world where they were running the same sample across multiple labs and they could get robust data across them. So having reproducibility standardized assays that you can run across the world in multiple reps and, and be confident in what you're what you're reading is really important um you shouldn't have much assay you know assay variability um those sort of pre-analytical conditions are, are really important so um those are sort of the things that we look for um when we're looking and deciding on your new technology and, and uh, again adoption uh, globally i think that's also important 
Excellent. Yeah, great answer. Thanks for that. Um, our next question here, how can you distinguish M1 macrophages and M2 macrophages in the tissue? And what phenotype markers were used to identify the two different polarized uh, macrophages? Yeah, that's a good question. We try to stay away from M1, M2s. The, well, the immunologists always tell us it's, it's not as simple as that. But um, we use CD68, CD163, and a few other markers to try to, um, you know, at a sort of a gross level, uh, distinguish between the two. Um, it is sufficient for the moment, but we are trying to improve our calls in that um, in the M1, M2 sort of space. Um, but yeah, it's it, that that that's ongoing work. Fantastic. I think in a sort of similar vein, how do you differentiate between the normal germinal centers, lymphoid structures, and the tertiary lymphoid structures? Yeah, I wish I had to answer. <laughs> um, no, it's, it's, a, it's a really good question. We, I mean, for us, the first step is we get the H&E. We get that annotated by a pathologist. We sit and we go through those individual H&Es that are path annotated. And we get them, we get the pathologist to annotate, you know, where are the normal germinal centers, where are the, you know, lymphoid-like structures, where are the TLS-like structures? Where is the tumor? And when we have the lymphoid-like aggregates near the periphery or within the tumor, we demarcate them as tumor-associated or, or TLSs. Um, there's a lot of work that Julia Bruno's done in the field where they're using multiple markers, CD19, CD20, CD21. Um, you know, the structure of these TLSs, we're looking at the transcriptomic data. So comparing the RNA between germinal centers and TLSs at the moment, um, so it's sort of an integrated approach at the moment based on pathology readout, multiple markers, where in the tumor is it? Is it very far from where the tumor is? So we're using multiple ways to differentiate it. It's not, I don't think we have a clear cut approach at the moment, but it's sort of this confidence level uh, before we call them. I mean, we were talking to some colleagues the other day and they were telling us on, on DAPI that they could call lymphoid-like aggregates. So I think if you have these B-cell-like aggregates together, we can start to label them lymphoid, lymphoid-like, tertiary lymphoid, tertiary lymphoid-like structures, and then sort of, you know, as you molecularly characterize them, we'll be able to um, uh, define them better. But it's sort of early in the piece where, where there's a lot of um, uncertainty, but a lot of research is being done um, Olivia Newton-John's doing a lot of work in this space, Jessica Duarte-Gama, Bertulia Bruno, who are probably the experts in, in this space. All right, so other question. Can spatial multiomics data be used to measure cancer progression in patients? Yeah, that's a great question. We've, we've started to do sort of primary tissue versus lymph node metastases versus distant metastases studies. And so, you know, we know that primary tumors are, are very different to metastatic tumors um, in that the, the metastatic tumors are, you know, they might be immune cold and then so on. Um, how it can be used to measure progression is an interesting question. You almost sort of need to have, you know, state pre-cancerous lesions all the way through to stage four. We are doing some early work in, in, in head and neck cancer and oral cancers uh, looking at, you know, um, pre-lesion stage one, two, three, and four. Um, I think that will give us insights into how, um, you know, the pseudo time sort of progression of these tumors, um, sort of uh, sorry, the temporospatial uh, differences in these tumors. Um, but it's sort of early days. You sort of need to be sampling across, you know, tumor met, tumor met. Sometimes the metastases 
isn't biopsied. So I think we need to look at, you know, tumors which are more accessible, like such as skin cancers and so on, and then start to characterize the primary versus the metastases or, or, or um, at progression. Uh, we're sort of early in the piece where we are looking at early data where it's, it is diagnostic tissue or, or surgical uh, resections. Um, but I think over time, those sort of sort of really interesting studies where you've, you've looked at uh, primary versus metastatic lesions um, will will come will become mature. Right, great answer. Um, yeah, another nice question here. When you look at responders and non-responders for ICA patients, have you seen any differences uh, with, for immune cell uh, for differences in immune cell infiltration between them? So, in, in responders or non-responders themselves, do you see any different regions of infiltrations? Yeah, we do. So, I mean, each study is sort of unique in what we're identifying different immune cell types that might be infiltrating different neighborhoods, which might be infiltrating. Um, but it's also the state of those immune cells. So it's not like one cell type by itself will define it. And we can see from a lot of David Rim's work um, and, and a few labs around the world that there are these really interesting macrophage-like uh, cell types that are found in the tumor. Um, so it's not just about CD8s that are infiltrating the tumor. We are seeing clear differences between uh, patients that respond versus those that don't. We don't think a single cell type is probably the answer. We think the neighborhood analyses and these cells that almost, you know, come together or, or pull each other into the tumor um, are probably where a lot more of the complex biology is, which are underpinning response or resistance. But where it gets interesting is when we marry these cell type information data sets with the chemokine and cytokine signaling. Um, so how do the gradients of expression look like around those immune cells within the tumor and then so on. Um, so trying to marry the RNA data with the cellular localization data will probably give us new insights into that, into the responders and the non-responder groups. Um, but yeah, it is sort of early days where we where the numbers are getting higher and the data is getting more robust. So so stay tuned, I guess. <laughs> yeah, definitely. All right. Well, I think we can cap this up uh, with a question looking forward. Then, uh, so Arutha, what are you most excited about? And then also, what keeps you up at night? It's <laughs> a great question. Um, I think I'm most excited about how we can use spatial to democratize um, this approach. For the field so i think spatial is a tool um and if we use it correctly and we 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 build this multi-omics data cloud and impute that information into an e we democratize spatial for the community for the field to pathologists and that becomes widely adopted um what keeps me up at night um i don't know um uh, what does keep me up at night? i think i mean for for all our projects we work very closely with patients and patient advocates and patient advocate mentors i think ultimately these assays need to move forward to the clinic um it's it's great to you know have these amazing images and and you know these incredible data sets but hopefully you know, this moves the needle forward for precision medicine, for personalized medicine, and we can start to treat individual patients' tumors individually, trying to identify, you know, can we identify these patients that will respond to therapy early? If we know that these patients won't respond to mean checkpoint inhibitor therapies, is there another target we can uh, identify? And is there a therapy for that? Is there an opportunity to give a combination therapy with immunotherapy in a, in a way that 
is not toxic to the patient. So I think it's really, can we use these really exciting data sets to individualize therapies for individual patients so we treat their individual tumors and, and ultimately uh, improve their quality of life. hope you enjoyed this episode of Expert Answers and that you'll tune into future episodes where researchers just like you answer questions about their work and share science. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next time.